Thank you for joining us on this episode of Eminent Teachnology with Dr. Rochelle Newton and Drew Stennett, where we examine current and emerging technologies through the lens of diversity and equality. So, hello everybody. Welcome back to a new, a new episode of Eminent Teachnology with Dr. Rochelle Newton and Drew Stennett. Today we have another very awesome guest. Uh, we have Aaron Klein, who is a fellow at the Brookings Institute. Uh, fellow is like maybe the fanciest term I've ever heard for a job title. Is that like the, the American equivalent of being knighted? Like you're a fellow. <laughs> Rise and join the fellowship. Uh, it's, it's the way to think about it is, is I'm kind of like a professor, uh, except I don't teach. Awesome. Awesome. So Aaron does like tons of finance stuff. And uh, Aaron, could you like give us some uh, give us some information on your background and all that? Sure. I uh, grew up in Maryland. Uh, I still live in Silver Spring, uh, walking distance to my old high school uh, with my wife and a couple daughters. I started a career in public service, uh, which has led me to spend time working in the U.S. Senate. I was the chief economist on the Senate Banking, Housing and Urban Affairs Committee. I was fortunate enough to get an appointment and served at the Treasury Department as Deputy Assistant Secretary for Economic Policy for the first uh, for four years, essentially the first term of the Obama administration. Nice. And subsequent to that, I've been in the think tank world. Um, uh, I will be at Brookings April 1. We'll mark five years. No fooling. Very cool. Congratulations. Thank you. You know, I, I try to write and research on how the financial system is impacting the lives of uh, working Americans. And so when, if you think about it, right, it's not just the great financial crisis made clear that obscure concepts like bank capital standards can be imminently uh, impactful on the lives of ordinary people yeah. when, when you get things wrong. Uh, and so that research has led me to increasingly focus on problems we have in America's payment system and on potential ways in which technology is reorienting everything we, we do from finance to how we make a payment, to how we get credit, to whether or not we get credit and on what terms. Uh, and, and it's kind of open to Pandora's box. Uh, I like to say that most things involve money and most things that involve money then require financing or that money to move somehow. Yeah. And the movement of money, uh, you know, is is itself uh, an interesting set of concepts. Yeah, it's all everything. Uh, speaking as a technology person, I find everything with finance incredibly confusing, <laughs> and just uh, all the stuff with the housing uh, markets and uh, even the most recent like GameStop thing is just like uh, I have no idea what any of this is. But like, there's so much money flowing around, it makes me feel really weird. So. Uh, Aaron, I, I have a question for you. I, first, I'd like to start, if we possibly can, with some definition of terms. Um, and a lot of times, you know, people assume that they know what these things mean when they hear them. But let me let me throw four of them at you. Can you define what what a payment system is? Second, what is the correlation between payment systems and payroll? check deposits, whatever it is, how does that work? And, and to, to, to expand that definition a little bit, you know, check cashing systems, unbanked or underbanked, what, what are those terms? And then finally, can you say a little bit about, you know, what 
how cryptocurrency may influence or affect payment systems and, and, and that part of it. And then a little bit about regulations. So, you know, you worked in the banking area, you've got a great deal of experience in that. So what are the regulations and how do they look to the everyday man? Right, so that's, that's a lot to throw out there. Let me-, let me I appreciate you know, it. <laughs> a payment system is a system by which uh, money moves between multiple accounts. And I'll go one step further, which is let me define money. And I'm not gonna use the definition most people use. Money, most people use the definition of money as a medium of exchange, right? If you actually go back in history, that definition comes from John Locke, who's a fantastic philosopher, but a genius about money, he was not. <laughs> and the better definition of money, I think, is a system of debits and credits with third party uh, acceptance without prior party consent. So let me be very clear, Rochelle. Uh, this helps distinguish between the difference between money and assets, right? Assets are things you own, right? I own my house, but my house is not money, right? I, I, I own my car. My car is not money, right? You and I say that we have a history of taking each other out to lunch and the next lunch is on you. I have a lunch that you owe me as an asset on my balance sheet, right? I can think about in the future, you know, maybe if I'm a little low on funds, I'm going to hit you up for lunch, what? right? If I owe you lunch, I better save a little bit so that I can do that. It, it is an asset. It is not money because I can't, if I owe Drew a lunch and Drew and I have the same system, I can't say, you know what, Drew, why don't you take the lunch instead of me taking you out? Why don't you go out with Rochelle, right? I can't move that without your consent. Mm -hmm. Money can be moved. When somebody hands you money, it doesn't matter where that money came from. It's yours now. And that's just as true with physical cash as it is with a payment appearing in your bank account, right? And so in that way, if you think about money more broadly, a system of debits and credits that can move to a third party without prior party consent, right? I can't just get, you know, uh, give you the keys to someone else's car because they owe me something and I owe you something, right? They'd have to consent to that, right? Assets tend to have that kind. That gets your, this definition will be very useful in helping to explain the difference between cryptocurrency, quote unquote, and whether that's a money or an asset. Mm -hmm. Let me hold that aside. You ask the question of payroll, you ask questions about checks and banked and unbanked and underbanked people. So let me start with, with, all the payroll is, is the way that employers put money in your account. And that simply involves moving money from their bank account to your bank account, right? Mm -hmm. People think, oh, I say I get paid, I don't know uh, uh, if you guys get paid every other week or twice a month. 25th of the month, one time a month. 25th, oh, so you get paid monthly. Yeah. About 38% of Americans get paid every two weeks, about 30% twice a month and about 15% weekly and about 10% monthly, right? Um, when you get paid on the 25th of the month and that comes to you by direct deposit, yep. it is not that Duke has all of a sudden sent you money that morning and it just shows up. In fact, Duke has to send that money three to five or more days beforehand for it to end up in your account on the 25th. And if there's a weekend, if there's a holiday, 
I can think of one month a year where the 25th is, is, a, is a day off, right? Uh, you, they may have to change and, and do that earlier. And if they don't get it right, you could, you could show up on the 26th, it could show up on the 24th. So right. that delay of day- Any day other than the last day of the month. I right. mean, a, week, a weekend, I'm sorry, weekend. any day other than a weekend. Well, but again, this becomes confusing, right? Why? Why does our payment system close on Friday? Does anything else close on Friday? I mean, can you go to the store, right? We all need money over the weekend, right? In fact, many other countries, their payment system operates and puts money in uh, 24-7, 365. America is relatively unique among developed countries that our payment system goes to sleep on the weekends and holidays. This explains why when they're processing emergency payments on December 30th, uh, it didn't hit anybody's account till January 4th. And you know that had a huge cost to working people who had to pay bills on the first of the month. Um, you asked for definitions of the term unbanked. Unbanked are uh, households without a bank account. According to the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation or FDIC, those are the people who insure your bank account from the government. About 5% uh, or one in 20 households in America do not have a bank account. That data is heavily skewed by race. Hmm. Among black families, it's about 14%, uh, uh, about one in uh, um, seven. Among Latino families, it's about one in eight or 12%. And white families, it's two and a half percent. And so, you know, it, it is huge, you know, put a different way, black and Latino families are six to seven times more likely to be unbanked. They do not have a bank account. Pause. Underbanked are the 15 to 20% of Americans. So three to four times as many people who don't have a bank account have a bank account. But what does it mean to be unbanked? Well, the government definition of this statistic is you have a bank account, but over the last year you have used a check casher, a money transmitter, think Western Union, or a payday lender. And so these folks, right, have a bank account but they use what most people would call an alternative high cost provider to move or access money. Remember, the only people who can use a payday lender are people who have a bank account because when you get a payday loan, you give somebody a check for the future, right? And in order to have a check, you gotta have a checking account. Uh, my research has questioned why people have, uh, why the unbanked, why the underbanked use these services so much and has come to the realization that a lot of this has to do with delays in the payment system. So here's a fact, I haven't published it yet. So nobody who's listening, go and steal it. Um, <laughs> copywriting it. Let me get, I'm gonna write this down, hang on. <laughs> in the world of fellows, in the fellowship is, as you mentioned, you're like facts are, you know, in, inside a new data analysis, you know, could bring me to a higher order of knighthood. Yes. Yes. <laughs> the majority of people in America who use a check casher have a bank account. And the majority of checks cashed at a check cashing shop are from people with bank accounts. Right. You can see how one of those two could be true, but not necessarily the other. Yeah. Uh, this I deduced from the FDIC's own, own published data. Well, why is somebody with a bank account going to a check casher? Right. Well, you know, let's, uh, uh, we're taping this on March 22nd and uh, Friday is March 26th. 
And if I get have it get a check on Friday, March 26th, I put it in my account, maybe it'll be there by the 31st. Because as we said, again, this, the payment system that connects all these banks uh, operated by the, uh, there are several of them, but the biggest, most common one operated by the Federal Reserve, America's central bank, uh, is closed on weekends. And depending on who the check is from, it can take anywhere from one to three business days uh, for the check to show up in my account. Sometimes four or five, depending on if there's a holiday or I said business days, not real days. Well, if I go to a check cashier, I get cash and cash clears immediately. Now, say a check cashier is 20 bucks. That feels like an outrageous amount of money to spend to access your own money. So you have a $1,000 paycheck, right? Okay, 20 bucks. That's a lot of money. 35 bucks is what one bank overdraft charges, right? That is when you hit zero on your account and a payment gets processed and the bank covers it. Well, 20 bucks is less than 35. And if you get three or four overdrafts, right? 8% um, of Americans pay about 75% of the overdraft fees, mm -hmm. which are in the tens of billions of dollars a year. These people are called heavy overdrafters. So again, think about that. 8% of Americans spend $300 a year or more on these overdraft fees, right? Only thought, and they have bank accounts, right? The only way to get a fee from your bank is to have an account. 5% of Americans don't have accounts. So when you ask yourself, kind of, Rochelle, what are the different problems facing America? There's a lot of talk about the unbanked, and it's a big issue, don't get me wrong. But I think we fail to really ask the question, why are people with bank accounts paying so much for basic financial services? And it turns out the two questions are related. When you ask those 5% of people, why don't you have a bank account? The number one reason, it's too expensive. Right. Fees, costs, fees, costs. It's not these hours or branch location. That comes up in less than one out of 20 of the unbanked people's main reason. We're about half of them say fees, some version of the account is too expensive, overdraft fees, unpredictability of cost, right? Uh, um, and basic banking is expensive. Free checking is only free if you have a thousand bucks in your account at all times. For, I'm picking a number, but right. We offer things that for quote unquote free to people with more money and we charge people with less money for the same service. Absolutely. So the final part of your question that I've not yet touched on is crypto. And this gets to the question of what is money? Is Bitcoin money, right? According to the United States Treasury Department, the answer is no. Bitcoin is an asset. When you buy or sell Bitcoin, you pay a capital gains tax, which is what you pay on taxes about investments that earn money. We all have dollars, right? That's what we all get paid in. Well, the US dollar goes up and down, right? Right. Uh, it, uh, uh, this morning, Turkey's currency fell 14% because of political instability in that country. The dollar doesn't move that much, but over time, it can move up a lot. Nobody here ever pays capital gains on the basis of the idea that your dollar has gone up in value, right? That's because we exempt money, U.S. currency, from capital gains. We do not exempt Bitcoin. We do not exempt GameStop stock, right? 
And so in that way, one of the special things it means to be money. So cryptocurrencies are considered assets legally. Now you can, you can buy or sell goods. There are people that will accept assets. Um, there are people that will accept assets for other transactions. Uh, but from a government perspective, they've been deemed assets, not money. So in, in, in your description, is absolutely exceptional. We really appreciate that. That's very helpful to know that. So I am Joe Blow, the average person in society. I have an account. I do not have more than $1,000 either in my checking or savings account. My money is, uh, I live paycheck to paycheck. And so now I'm in a society where my access to cash and my, my status are tied to my wealth or my affluency. How do I participate in a society where I have none, where I do not have access to things that would make my world better? So I could have $1,000 in my account, or I could have more money, or I could buy some cryptocurrency, or I could go out and buy life insurance or something like that. How do I get from where I am now to the next place? Well, look, the, the core problem that in society have to do with the fact that we don't pay people enough and that wages are too low and all sorts of different wages up the spectrum have not kept up with the cost of living and that we've had a tremendous concentration of wealth in the hands of the few. The financial work I do can't really solve that problem. The work I do though is shining a spotlight on the regressivity of our payment and other financial system that makes the problem that you describe even worse, right, Rochelle? If you're this person and you can't access money, you know, you're living in a world of prepaid cards, you know, those big racks and racks of prepaid cards yep. that you see, right? There's a reason there's so many of them. One out of every 10 swipes at a cash register is a prepaid card, yep. right? That's a whole different group of people. Those people are paying money to be able to access their money digitally. Right. Right. $100 gift card often has $3 purchase fee. Maybe there's a fee to check your balance. Maybe there's a monthly fee if you don't use it, et cetera. Right. That's 3% to, to turn $100 into a digital amount. And we need digital money. You want to order something on Amazon. You want to order something on right? Uber doesn't take cash. Right. Right. As we digitize more of the world, particularly in relationship to COVID, we are requiring digital money. Digital money is not only free for rich people, they actually get paid to use it, right? What's in your wallet? A Sapphire card, a platinum card? Those cards give you rewards. The more you spend, the more you quote unquote earn. But interestingly, those rewards are considered rebates. Rebates are not taxed, right? When you use a coupon, you don't have to pay tax on the coupon. This little loophole has become quite a big thing. There's a, uh, a big story recently, a judge kind of tried to reinterpret this loophole. There was a guy who made $300,000 in credit card rewards. He found a little loophole where he could kind of game the system and get free money and just rack up the, the, the rewards. And the judge ruled this was basically his full-time job. He made $300,000 in a year doing it. And, and uh, now that's not what most people do, right? But you know, a lot of people are making a lot of money on this thing. So let's say that you're a small business person, right? So you're not quite the, the Joe Six Packet you mentioned, but maybe maybe you're a home contractor. 
And last year you uh, did $300,000 worth of business and you spent $200,000 on materials, right? Maybe $50,000 on labor and you profited 50,000 bucks. And then you paid taxes on that $50,000 of, of earnings. So you had $200,000 and let's say that you had the Home Depot card and you're a big spender at Home Depot. So you get 2% cash back on everything Home Depot does. Well, that's 4,000 bucks over the course of a year. Yep. No taxes. Okay. So that's more than 10% on a post-tax basis of what you earned for a contractor, right? I pick a home contractor because those people are providing a service, right? Your basement's finished. You have a new room on your building. You got your windows done, your gutters, right? These are real tangible services. And in the financialization of this process, 10% of this small con hypothetical contractor's money is coming from the payment system. Right. And what the point I haven't mentioned to you, which is a competitive point, right? Which is why is this all structured this way? Well, one of the reasons is if I have the Home Depot card, right? And I'm getting cash back at Home Depot, I'm probably not shopping at Lowe's. Right. Yeah. Right. I'm probably not starting to consider alternatives. Right. Um, but we have, we have seen this financialization and it is deeply regressive. The person that you describe, Rochelle, by definition, isn't getting the exclusive credit card offers that wealthy right. people are getting. Right. And, and, and that, that way, might be, go ahead. I'm sorry, Aaron. Well, in that way, we've, we've systematized regressivity into our payment world in which the wealthy people are being paid just to shop. And that money's coming out of the low income people because we're all charged the same thing at the register. And the store has to pay a, a fee. And the fancier your card, the more the store pays, right? There's a reason Costco only accepts one type of credit card right. to drive down their processing fees. They make right. one big exclusive offer, right? They just switched from Amex to Visa a few years ago. Yeah. Those of you who, who may remember that. It's one of the few stories, but that's how much that money costs them, right? And as an economist, I study cross-subsidization and we live in a cross-subsidized world in which poor people and moderate means income people are subsidizing all those points guys and rewards. And that's baked into our policy. I think it's pretty messed up. I think so too. So I, I wanna just add one more point though. In, in what you're saying, you're not advocating for any of us to go out and get one of those uh, things we get in the mail from Discover and American Express and whoever else has a credit card that we go get one because they're saying you could get uh, fees on everything you purchase. And there's a lot of commercials that do that now saying you get cash back for eating, going to the movies, going to the grocery store, but you get your most cash back for paying your bill on time. You're not advocating for us to do that, are you? No, no, no. I'm not advocating. Look. I'm not advocating or giving any financial advice to anybody individually other than don't rack up credit card debt. It is very, very expensive. What I am pointing out is that systemically, the rewards get bigger the richer you are. And those rewards come from somewhere. They don't just magically rain money on you. Right. Right. And where they come from are higher Prices at the register paid in full by people using cash, credit, cash, debit, or prepaid, right. right? There's a very clear correlation between 
how you pay for something and how much money you have. Yeah. There aren't poor people with at American Express double platinum. And I'm going to tell you what, there aren't that many rich people using prepaid cards or debit cards. <laughs> I don't think so. What do you think the answer to that is? Like, I mean, just having, you know, having people have to pay to use their money seems very bad, especially for underprivileged folks. Do you think that the answer is uh, like government regulation or is there something else? Yeah, so, uh, you know, there was uh, uh, a very mistaken Supreme Court case, uh, Amex v. Ohio, it was decided five to four, uh, Clarence Thomas in the majority. And basically the state of Ohio said they passed a law empowering merchants, right? It, it, within the credit card contract was if you take one Visa credit card, you have to take them all. So then each of these fancier cards, platinum, sapphire, I don't even know, titanium, I don't know, you know, you keep going up this precious metal thing, what, what's next, <laughs> right? Is a ruby better than a sapphire? The, um, uh, uh, and, and Ohio passed a law that said, no, 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 merchants can opt out of any individual tier of cards. And this got challenged as an antitrust ground. Because you can understand a merchant saying, whoa, I'm not gonna take the super fancy card right but it's a huge cost for a merchant to say no visa yeah. right no mastercard no amex um and this case made it all the way to the supreme court and i think the supreme court made a big mistake in a five to four decision i think empowering merchants right uh you know as opposed to allowing the bundling of the product so to give you an example of like what's one way we could have solved that i think one way we could do that is is empowering merchants because right now it's a very you know it's a very expensive choice for them if they're gonna take something else right um there's another question of whether or not merchants should be allowed to go cashless which is right. something i also think is a mistake i think we have to preserve cash as long as we have a system in which it costs so much for low-income people to digitize their money yeah. restricting the ability to purchase the things like i get in an online world right? You can't always use cash. Uh, but, you know, if I'm, if I'm in front of you at a store, then I think the store should be required to accept cash. Right. Is that a law right now? Do, do stores have to accept cash? It varies state to state and jurisdiction to jurisdiction. Okay. Okay. So, so Aaron, I want to go back to um, my, I'm, I'm Joe Poor again, and um, I am uh, in this environment. And guess what? I got my stimulus check. I got 14 whole hundred dollars. And from what I can read, I think that I am, uh, this $1,400 is not going to be taxed against me. I'm not going to have to deal with it on my IRS form, but I've just gotten this stimulus check and I got it yesterday and I have spent it all today. I have no more money. Tell us a little bit about stimulus payments and why they impact certain groups adversely as opposed to other groups? Well, I mean, a couple of things, right? First, if you got the $1,400 check, uh, it would be hard to spend it all in one day because the check wouldn't show up to your account for three or four, even though it's a US government check, which is nuts to me. Amazon can get you anything in the world to your doorstep in 48 hours, and the federal government can't get you emergency money for six days. They sent the stimulus payments on a Friday and it got there the following Wednesday, this most recent round. And that's by quote unquote, direct deposit. One of the big mistakes I see people make is they think direct means instant. Right. Far from it. In the rest of the world, it does. 
You go over to England, England got real-time payments in 2008, Mexico in 2005, Brazil in 2004, um, uh, Switzerland in 1999, right? We're still working on the blockbuster of payments and the rest of the world streaming. Right. But um, research that Brookings published, uh, my colleague Dan Murphy at the Financial Health Network did the work and he found that $66 million of those CARES Act stimulus paper checks ended up in the hands of check cashers. Wow. People needed access to their money faster. Um, you know, those $1,400, uh, you know, shouldn't be spent in one day, particularly if you're a person of modest means uh, and you need to budget that. Uh, for many people, they're going to start getting monthly payments starting in July with the child tax credit that's come in, depending on the family structure of the person that you describe. Uh, but it's, it's very hard to make your income match your expenses. And the two things I guess I would add to that are, or three things I would add to that. One, there's been a paternalistic and flawed assumption that financial literacy or education is what would be beneficial for the type of person you describe. In reality, most of the people that you've described there are more financially quote unquote literate than many of the wealthy people. They make budgets, they're constantly checking their bank balance, but it's very hard to budget for uncertainty, particularly uncertainty of income. So it's not a question of knowledge, right? They have the knowledge. Uh, second point, income is becoming more and more variable, whether it's hourly workers whose hours go up or down, whether it's side hustles and gig economies. A lot of the people that you describe, Rochelle, are not making uh, uh, one or two steady income streams of a salary job with no one, one source of income over the entire year. People and families, particularly in the bottom half of the income distribution are piecing together two, three, four, five, six, seven different streams of income. Main job, second job, part-time job, side hustle, seasonal things, right? Payments across families, child support, parental help, all sorts of different things. And that money is highly volatile right. and variable. Right. Expenses are far more fixed. I say this because, again, a lot of the thinking over the last 20 years, based on budgeting and the rest, were about saving to handle volatile expenses, right? The number one story you would hear about these things is cars breaking down, right? Car repairs. Mm -hmm. uh, in point of fact, the far more uh, likely outcome that throws a, a low a family living paycheck to paycheck off kilter is a sudden shock in earnings. I was sick and I didn't make work three days of the last 10 and my paycheck is now cut in a third. Right. Right. I, you know, I have a side hustle where I paint uh, two weekends a month and it rained every Saturday and my income was cut. Right. Uh, you know, I, I worked in the wedding industrial complex, uh, which last year went away due to COVID. Right. It wasn't my main job. Right. Uh, and that, when you have variable income, it's a very, very different solution. This is one of the reasons why I favor giving people more access to their earnings faster. So it's kind of nuts, right? You say that you get paid on the 25th of the month from Duke. Is that for the current month or the prior month? I think it's the prior month, but I wouldn't bet any cash on it. I don't know how that thing but, worked. Well, let's just say it's for the prior month for the sake of argument. So you work for 30 days and then your employer gets to hold on to your money for your labor for an additional 25. So from that first day that you work, 
to that day that you got paid is 55 days that they held on to your asset, right? Your earning until you got access to it. I, I can That's I, a pretty long interest-free loan. It is. Can I ask you just one question about that though? Is it because as a most most states have the right to work uh, in place, and so as an employee, I could be let go at any time, and so my employer is going to hold on to my uh, thirty days of pay in case I stole something or I broke something or I no. did something. Is that no, possible? No. No, no, no. I mean, there's, there's, you earned it. You worked it. If you stole something or something else, they can come after you for that. But it's your money. You will get paid for your last paycheck, even if they fire you and you have to leave at the end of the day. They still have to pay you for the days that you worked, right to work or, or not. What it really stems from is bookkeeping used to be expensive. Payroll processing used to be manual. There was a person down in the office who had to do up the ledger and take the instructions, right? with a piece of paper to the bank, they couldn't possibly give it to you every day, right? The world used to be pretty different, but we talk about technology, right? One of the technologies that have not advanced or adopted is this payroll system. Right. And I get why employers like to hold your money, right? I mean, right, but, but, but workers, so I believe that people should have access to their money faster. And this gets to the difference, again, the question between an asset and money. Right. Your wages that you worked is your asset, right? You own that, that's yours. And you will eventually get that turned into money. But you can't go anywhere and buy something, right? You can't trade this future wage of yours, right? Without the consent of your employer who's holding on to your money. Same thing when you're depositing your checks. Why does the bank get to hold on to them for three plus days? That's just amazing. Because they so, can. And so just, just to end this piece of that conversation. So um, now a lot of employers are requiring employees to have bank accounts so that they can do direct deposits. Is that because there's some benefit over printing and mailing a check? Or is that some other reason why they've gone to these types of reasons? It's just, it just makes it easier for them. I mean, there are a lot of benefits to direct deposit. The electronic movement of money is, is faster than mailing physical checks and the rest. Uh, not all employees want that. Sometimes people are concerned about garnishments, back orders, judges, judgments against them. So they, that's, a, that's one of the reasons some people don't have bank accounts. But I'm unbanked now. I, I don't have a bank account. I don't have a regular banking relationship. So now you're requiring me to go out and get one of those relationships. And I may not understand all the pieces and parts of what that may mean. So now I've had a bank account when my employer is going to deposit my check um, and however long it takes it to get there. But I need my money right now. My rent is due. I've got to you know, feed my children. I, I've got babies. I've got be, things I've got to do. Right. It's, it's going to be faster to get that electronic payment than to get it by paper form. The people that you've described often end up going to payday loan route, right? That gets back to that 15% of underbanked folks that, that, that have that situation. Uh, there are many banks that will offer a product, uh, a, a low cost basic bank account, something certified by a group called Bank On. The FDIC also runs a certification of a safe account where if you sign up for direct deposit, you will have a low to no minimum monthly fee. You'll not, you'll be given a product without overdraft, et cetera. Many banks offer this, not all. I believe it should be mandatory. 
I believe the government should require this of all banks. Look, being a bank is a special thing. You get a charter from the government, right? With that comes responsibility. Uh, I think that should be one of the bank's responsibilities uh, is to offer that type of basic, you know, free account uh, to somebody who gets a direct deposit. Many banks do, but not, not all. And some banks make their whole business model trying to find low-income people and charge overdrafts too. That's awful. We're, we're running up on time here too. So if there's any like, any cool final things y'all want to talk about? Can I just ask one last question, Aaron? What is ACH and what is it, what's the correlation between ACH payments versus a regular um, payroll payment or, or a stimulus check or something like that? So ACH stands for the Automated Clearinghouse. Do you remember when I said that we run on a system uh, uh, like Blockbuster? Yeah. Think, uh, the automated clearinghouse is the Blockbuster store where all the payments go. And that store is owned by the Federal Reserve, America's central bank. And one of the big problems in why America's payment system is so messed up, does such a poor job of serving people in need, is that the government assigned the Federal Reserve two different responsibilities. First, it said, we want you to regulate all the payment systems. And second, it said, we want you to operate a system that connects all the banks. And that latter system is ACH. Now, there are other payment systems, there are other clearinghouses, there are other networks uh, organized by different entities all across the country that run payments and clearings and settlements. And then there's some that aren't even run by banks, Venmo, PayPal, right? The problem is the Federal Reserve is supposed to regulate all of the payment systems. And then they have this old antiquated guy. And rather than sub submit regulation that would push payments to move faster, like the rest of the world has done, right? You can send a payment between any two countries in the European Union instantly, right? And that's complicated, right? Italy and, and Spain and uh, England or Ireland, uh, you know, they all have very, you know, differing systems antiquated. They've all been merged. You know, here from North Carolina to Maryland, your system from the Fed will take days. Uh, and you, is, you won't have any certainty about how it's being sent. And so, you know, the best analogy I've come up with on this is imagine if Blockbuster was in charge of the regulation for streaming content. Anybody think Blockbuster would have let Netflix stream things into your room? Absolutely and when you not. talk about payroll, right? Payroll is usually transmitted by ACH, not necessarily. They're different entities that have differing things. There's some alternative payment systems. Some of the new uh, FinTech payment per payroll providers like uh, Square and others are offering faster products in part to try and help the merchants also, uh, or the payors. Uh, not everybody kind of has the stability of Duke's uh, income stream. So, cause there's a burden on small businesses. Remember if you're gonna get paid on the 25th, they probably have to send it on the 22nd. You know, some businesses wanna be able to send it on the 24th, right? Plenty of small businesses are struggling to make payroll. Um, and the Federal Reserve has just absolutely failed to modernize its payment system. Just didn't do it. Even though there's all these things I can point to in law that require regulations to be as fast as technology, right? They seem to think the fastest you can rent a movie is driving a Blockbuster. And that's their, <laughs> that's their regulatory requirement, 
right? The rest of the world can stream content all you want. The, now, to the Federal Reserve credit, they've promised that they're going to build a new system. They've called it FedNow. They say it's going to be here by 2023, right? My point is we're a year into COVID and we're still mailing paper checks and taking five days for emergency payments to reach their situation. Yep. You know, it cannot be that Amazon can get anything in the world to your doorstep faster than Uncle Sam can give you 1400 bucks in your bank account. Absolutely. And the problem is the longer we ignore this problem and the more that we say, oh, well, we can solve this in two to three years, so don't worry about it now. You know, look at the number of, of children who went, who went hungry last weekend while these payments, some of these payments are just sitting there. It is completely unacceptable. And, and I know we can do better uh, and hopefully we will. Thank you for listening to Eminent Teachnology. If you like the show, please review, subscribe, and recommend us to your friends and family. We'd love to hear feedback from you as well. You can email us at eminentteachnology at gmail.com. See y'all soon.